0: All right, so we are now in week two, studying the Ten Ten Commandments. We are on the First Commandment. The first thing I like to do on a teaching series like this is just to review what we've already covered. So last week, if you wasn't here, Randy did a great introduction, great laying the foundation, the groundwork for what we'll be studying. And I think his opening psalms from that study are still very apt for us. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In verse 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now we won't get to that point by the end of this study that we are saying these words and we are meaning these words that we love the law. We are not embittered by the law. We are not burdened by the law, but we love the law. Now, last week, Randy talked about legalism, and C.J. Mahaney wrote, Legalism is substituting, in essence, my works for Jesus' finished work. Legalism is self-atonement in the height of arrogance. It's living as if the cross of Christ was unnecessary and insufficient. Meaning, we think, if you think legalism is we have to obey the law to the very letter to get God's favor. Now we know that's false, we know that's wrong, but many people, when we talk about the moral law, say, You're legalists. We are not. We are Christ honoring, Christ loving servants of the Lord. And then on the flip side of that coin of antinomianism, which is, as Brian Chappell says, legalism makes believers think that God accepts them on the basis of what they can do. Licentiousness, or antinomianism, makes believers think that God does not care what they do. Both errors have terrible spiritual consequences. So at the end of the day, if you either follow legalism or antinomianism, you're saying, God is wrong, I am right, I know what is right, and that's what I'm going to do. Well, we know that's wrong. But that is out there, that's prevalent today. But it's always good to just remind us about that. So as we looked at Psalm 119, how do we delight in the law? Why should we delight in God's law? Simply, God's law reveals God's heart. It's revealing his heart. So we're looking at the first commandment. So the question is, what does the first commandment reveal about God's heart? What does it reveal about God himself? That is why I want to focus on. That is what I am going to teach on. And I want to explore this commandment as it reveals his character and his heart. Now, like any good student that we are, the scripture, we know context is king. There's a great mantra of context is king. Memorize it, know it, live it, breathe it. Anytime you open your scriptures, context, context, context. So for us, turn to your Bibles in Exodus chapter twenty. Exodus chapter 20 is when Moses is on Mount Sinai, the clouds are down, lightning, thunder, the people out the base of the mountain. And God says, starting in verse one, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. Or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, and jealous, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. you shall not covet your neighbor's house. you shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments we know it, we probably all have it memorized. We ask our children, what's the third commandment? What's the sixth commandment? You're asking your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews. We all know it and we should. But as we're looking at the historical context, some groundwork we need to cover. One question I would like to ask is, how long was Israel in the land of Egypt? Now, Exodus chapter 20, and verse 40 tells us they were in Egypt for 430 years. What's amazing is that the Lord gave Moses a promise that he, as God, would bring the people out all the way back in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 12. This was a divine promise given that, one, God would be with Moses, and two, God would deliver his people. Then Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, we see that the promise is indeed kept. The Lord was faithful to his word. He kept it. He was faithful to his people. Now, from the time that the, the Pharaoh told the people to go to so the made it to Mount Sinai, it's about three months. Exodus 19, verse 1. So what happened in those three months? We probably all remember this. The big things through tra- chapters 12 through 19. We have the parting of the Red Sea. The Lord leading the people of pillars of cloud and fire, the bed of water made sweet, bread from heaven, water from rock. Many powerful and great and amazing works that were done before the people on a regular and consistent basis. You earmark that. It was a regular thing that God was showing his work. But yet, what did the people do? What do people do? They crumbled. They grumbled consistently as consistent as the Lord was faithful to be with his people. They were consistent to grumble. They grumbled in chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. So what were they grumbling about? What were they wanting? All right, that's the heart question of us today. Why do we grumble? What do we want? We're going to explore their hearts along with ours as we continue. Now, Context. We looked at what happened before leading up to Mount Sinai. Now we're going to go to chapter 32. We're going to see what's happening a little bit after the golden calf. So Moses is up on the mountain. He's with God. There's lightning, there's thunder. Moses has been gone for a while. The people were scared. Moses has delayed in returning. How long? Maybe about 40 days. So the question is, what were the people experiencing? What emotions? Fear, anxiousness, worry, anger. How many times when they were coming to Mount Sinai, did the people say, I want to go back. Put me back in slavery. I don't want this. Why am I here? Why are you leading me? Moses is dead. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. So what do the people do when they experience these powerful, very real emotions at the base of the mountain? We can ask that same question in our hearts, can't we? When we have fear and anxiousness and worry, when we're angry, what do we do? What do we do? Well, they return to what they knew. We do the same thing. They return to what was comfortable. And we're going to unpack that. We do the same thing. We return to what is comfortable, to what we know. So what was that? What was comfortable for the Israelites? So remember, we said that they were in Egypt for how many years? 430 years. And What was Egypt's religious beliefs? They, were they monotheists? No, not by a little. They were polytheists by a lot. Now remember the 10 plagues, right? Every plague was pretty much a direct attack against a God of Egypt. So the question is, were the people influenced by Egypt's culture? And to put a little perspective for this for us, you remember, they were in Egypt longer than the United States has been a country. If you did the math, they were there for quite a bit longer than we have even been a country. Are we influenced by our culture, which is relatively young? Are we influenced? Are we swayed? Of course we are. We all are. Whether we admit it or not, we're all swayed and tempted by the culture around us. And yes, Israel was swayed. They were affected by their culture. How do we know this? they made the golden calf. If they weren't affected by their culture, they would not have made that golden calf. So you can say that Israel, up to this point, they themselves are a polytheistic country who are being introduced and trying out monotheism. And because of that, they have become syncretists. Because all polytheists... And we're going to get into that a little bit later as well. Now, what's amazing is that we experience the same battles today as they did as well. We battle to be a monotheistic people in a culture that says, be anything else but a monotheist. We are screamed at that night and day, 24 hours. Don't be that crazy Christian person. Be anything else. Don't be that. We listen to it. That does affect us. Now, I want to talk about that golden calf because it shows us that we are really no different than they are. Sure, maybe we don't go around. and I'm not saying, give me your earrings. Give me your rings. I need all your gold. I'm going to form this little thing. No one's doing that. But we do make idols out of gold, don't we? As it's been said, our hearts are little idol factories. So, historical context: we know what led up. You got ten plagues, they're in Egypt for 30 years. They're out Mount Sinai. We know what happens after the golden calf. So we have set the stage. We have seen that the Lord was faithful to His promise to be with Moses and to deliver His people out of bondage. The Lord's amazing and powerful and beautiful work of delivering the people is now contrasted with the darkness of sin that's in their hearts. That's in. Our hearts. So, back to Exodus chapter 20, in the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, like any good study, we're going to look at this word by word or phrase by phrase, as it may be. So the you. You. We know that in our language and languages around the world, words are either singular or plural. I'm going to say You. Meaning y'all, every one of you, or I can say you, specifically you. So when the Lord says you here, he's addressing each individual, each conscious person there. Not just the collective whole as a unit, but the individual. So remember, Israel is a big nation made up of individual people. Just as the church today is made up of individual people. The Lord knows each and every one that is his. His covenantal love, his steadfast love, his saving love is applied to each individual who makes up Israel, who makes up the church. He knows you specifically. He knows you as a group. So you individually. Shall have. This is our verb. This is the action. There's no passivity that can be had from the people. The Lord's not saying, maybe you shouldn't. He's saying, you shall not. I need action. He requires action from the people. They cannot be sitting idle on the side and pretend to follow the command, just like we can't pretend to follow Christ. Christ. Think of Romans 12:2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. To be conformed by this world means you're passive. Think of plato got a little lump of Plato in your hand or a kid's hand, and they squeeze it, and they squish it, gets in the carpet, gets in their hair. If you're my girls, it's everywhere. But the point is, it's being forced into something by someone else. The Plato is not being made into a log or into a flower or whatever it might be. It's being smushed. It's being crushed. Same thing for us. If we are idle, if we are not renewing our minds by the scriptures, you are being smushed into the image the culture wants you to be, which is ultimately what the devil wants you to be, a Christ denier. Maybe you have some platitudes, but ultimately he's forming you into what he loves, which is hating the Lord you are ought to love, but being renewed means you are actively resisting. You are being molded by the Word, not by the world. You cannot be passive. Because being passive, even about this command, means that you are passively allowing anything and everything to become a god to you. So you shall have. Now we get to the word no. Okay, hard Hebrew word, right? What does it mean? Zip, zero, nada, none, absolutely nothing. Not one little extra god, not two, none. Pretty straightforward. Now, the other gods, this is where we're going to camp for a moment because Thomas Watson wrote a great little piece about this. He writes There really is no other god. The Valentinians held there were two gods, the polytheists. That there were many. The Persians worshipped the sun, the Egyptians worshipped the ox and the elephant, the Grecians worshipped Jupiter, but there is no other than the true God. Acknowledge and take this to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below, there is no other Deuteronomy 4. For there is but one first cause, that has its being of itself and on which all other beings depend. As in heavens, the primal mobile moves all the other orbs. So God is a great mover. He gives life and motion to everything that exists. There is but one opponent power. There are no two opponent. We must always suppose a contrast between the two. That which one would do, the other being equal, would oppose. And so all things will be brought into confusion. If a ship should have two pilots of equal power... One would be ever crossing the other. When one would sail, the other would cast the anchor. There would be confusion and the ship would perish. The order and harmony in the world, the constant and uniform government of all things, is a clear argument that there is but one opponent, one God who rules all. I am the first. I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 44. So we're going to explore what the other gods are a little bit later. That's a primer. So before me, this, this is where we get personal. Because this literally means besides me or before my face. This commandment brings the relational level. Up to this point, you only have, you shall have no other gods. Pretty generic, right? There's no specificity. It's impersonal. It's cold. Now, if the word's before me, it's been rooted. It's rooted in someone. Question is, who's this someone? Who is this God? That's the question. Having the right understanding of who this God is is the most important thing we should ever explore and understand and get. It's the most important question. If you don't know who this God is, you are utterly lost. If you know who this God is, he will guide you. Because left to our own power, we will still be lost. This is the God who revealed himself in the scriptures. We can look to nature. We can see its beauty, the creativity, the order. We can see all that. But only looking at nature, it's not enough to know this God and for the God who made it. We must read and understand these scriptures and these scriptures alone, all by the Spirit's guidance. That is how we will know God. Now, when it says before me, we talk about it's in front of my face; it's beside me. Think of John 17 and the language that Christ used when he's praying to his Father of that intimate togetherness they had. Because scripture, along with John 17 and some other ones, makes it abundantly clear that the one true God is a profoundly personal God. Think of John's prologue to his gospel. The opening verses of Genesis. The words, we, us. There is an intimacy in the Godhead. There are many other scriptures that we can think of, that you can think of that point to the truth that God is a relational, personal God. So to bring this all together. So while this commandment is set in the negative, when it says, you shall have no other gods before me, it does contain a positive. So we can say, you shall have no other gods, negative, positive, but you shall regard me as God alone. Now, any good commandment study that you probably have ever been a part of talks about two elements. You probably all know those two elements. One, the sin to avoid, and the other one, the duty to obey or the duty to do. Once again, Thomas Watson, in his book, The Ten Commandments, he gives a magnificent breakdown of this, of the duties to do. And he listed... A mere seven. He writes, we must have God for our God. It is manifest that we must have a God. And who is God Save the Lord? Second Samuel, the Lord Jehovah, one God in three is the true living, eternal God. And him we must have for our God to have God be our God is to acknowledge him as God the gods of the heathen are idols, Psalm 96. We know that an idol is nothing. That is, it has nothing of deity in it. If we cry, help, O idol, or as Israel say, help, O golden calf, an idol cannot help. The idols themselves are carried into captivity so that, so that an idol is nothing. To have God be our God to us is to choose him. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is, we will choose the Lord to be our God. It is one thing for the judgment to approve of God and another for the will to choose him. True religion is not a matter of chance, but choice. Before choosing God for our God, there must be knowledge. must know him before we can choose him. Before anyone chooses the person he will marry, he must have some knowledge of that person. So we must know God before we can choose him for our God. Just like we would never marry a stranger. We would never call God our God if he's a stranger. We must know him. Three, to have God be God to us is to enter into solemn covenant with him that he shall be our God. Four, to have God be God to us is to give him adoration, which consists in reverencing him. Five. To have God be God to us is to fear him, that you may fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 28. Six. To have God be God to us is to trust him. My eyes are unto you, O God the Lord. In you is my trust. Psalm 141. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. 2 Samuel 22. There is none in whom we can trust but God. All creatures are a refuge of lies. They are like the Egyptian reed, too weak to support us, but sharp enough. To wound us. And finally, seven, to have God to be God to us is to love Him. And the godly fear and love, kiss each other, know one another. Love Him. Adore Him. Those are a brief list of the duties to do. So what are the sins or the sin to avoid? Obviously, the sin is idolatry. So what is idolatry? Great question. What is it to have other gods besides the true God? I fear upon when we search our own hearts, we have more idols among us than we are even ever aware of. To trust in anything more than God, anything, that is an idol. Family can be an idol. Family gatherings, birthday parties can be an idol. Kids' sporting events, sports in general. Your spouse can be an idol. Your kids can be an idol. Food can be an idol. Anything and everything that we love more than the Lord is an idol. Isaiah 45, verses 5 and 6 and 20 through 25, make it abundantly clear there's one God that we should have. Matthew four ten as well. We have heard and more than likely have said the following phrase. When a good thing becomes a ruling thing, has become a bad thing. But there's a follow-up question we should ask ourselves and to the other person that we normally don't ask. And that question is, how do you know when that good thing has become a ruling thing? That's the question. When was the last time we asked that about the different things in our lives? Have you identified the thought patterns, behavior patterns, emotional patterns that proves a thing has become a ruling thing? Maybe you're saying things like, if I only had that, I'd be happy. That will bring me more joy. That will give me more time. I deserve blank. This thing brings me joy. There are a multitude of other things we might all say that shows our hearts just a little bit that something has become an idol in our hearts. Maybe you become embittered towards someone because they're getting in the way of what you want. You're holding hostility. You would much rather be with someone during the corporate gathering than with the church. There are many things. With that, with the Lord, there is no middle ground. You either have other gods before him or you don't. There's no maybes. There's no if onlys. You either do or you don't. The question is, do you know your heart? Or do you really want to know your heart? So what does this commandment reveal about God's heart and his character? So at the beginning, we went through and talked about historical context leading up to this point. Egypt was a polytheistic country. And with polytheism, they're always wanting to add more to the pantheon. You know, the more, the merrier. Just add and add and add. It's no big deal. This means that the polytheists are syncretists. You can add your God to my list of 200 gods, and it's okay. That's Egypt. That's what they promoted. That's what they wanted in an effort to keep peace. There's no problem adding to what they already know to be worship. Keep adding, keep adding. Now, the Lord knows that the people of Israel they have been highly influenced by this. The people may not have known how much they have been affected in their own hearts, but the Lord does. So the Lord must give this commandment first so that all the other commandments can be applied to them. Because if you leave out, you shall have no other gods before me. Nothing makes sense. There's only one reason why the other nine fit is because it is the one true God giving that commandment and the subsequent commandments. So he gives it. Why does he give it? He gives it because he loves his people. So how is giving of a negative command a loving action? How is this loving? When he says, you shall have no other gods. I'm a wet blanket. Brr. Is he? Or does he really love his people? We have already seen how the command is more than just the negative. There's that positive element of the duty to do. The Lord gives the negative, telling the people what he despises, which means on the other side of that coin, he is telling the people what he desires. Here's what I despise. You shall have no other gods before me. Because I want you for myself. You are my people. I will be your God. You will be my people. He loves his children. Exodus 6. He desires their hearts. Not just their actions. That's the whole moral law. If he just wanted root obedience. There would be no moral law. It would just be do as I say. But he loves his people. He knows his people, Exodus 6. He desires to protect his people. That's the whole Exodus event coming out of Egypt. God did not stand idly by as Moses did all the work. The Lord did the work. Moses was an instrument, yes. But the Lord did the work to protect his people. He desires to teach. His people. Exodus 20 and following. The whole giving of the law is an act of love from the Lord to his people. He desires to be known by his people. He, as a loving father, is firm with his children. Think back to the golden calf. Did that sin go unpunished? No. If you read the event, swords were drawn. He is a loving father and he does not tolerate sin. He is faithful to himself and to his people. And he is powerful. The 10 plagues is but one example. All that coming out of the first commandment is showing us how loving, how great, how powerful the Lord is because he knows that before Moses even steps foot onto that mountain to receive the law, he knows that people would fall to their fear, turn to their old ways and make that golden calf. The Lord knows that their hearts are weak and easily swayed. He knows that the people need him. There is no other hope for the people other than the Lord to take action. This thing is true of us, It's true of me and of our hearts. We are weak. We are easily swayed. There is no hope unless the Lord takes action. And praise the Lord, our God is not one who sits idly by watching the people he loves suffer. He takes action. He comes in the form of a burning bush, calls out Moses, does attend plagues, takes the people through the desert to Mount Sinai and gives them the law. So, at the time we have left, I want to explore how do we apply this to our lives? You and I are not Israel. You and I are not a Mount Sinai in which there are clouds above us, there's lightning, there's thunder. Our leader is missing for 40 days. That's not us. We can learn from this event, yes. And we should So how do we do this? How do we apply, you shall have no other gods before me? Well, one example I like to talk about, did this in catechism with our older kids. I talked about house rules. So the Lord gives his moral code, his house rules, as it were. You should behave this way upon my house. I asked the kids, I won't say which one's answered, I asked him, what are the house rules in your house? There are some fun ones, some normal ones like wash your hands before dinner, don't hit your sister, don't pull her hair, don't hit him with a baseball bat. There's an odd one that someone said do not jump off the toilet. I don't understand how that rule came about, but it was there. But these house rules, they do something, right? They reveal our hearts. So, with your house rules, what do those reveal about you to others? If you ask your children, what do these rules I have set in this house reveal about me to you? We know the Ten Commandments reveals God's heart to his people. We went through that whole list. He is strong. He is powerful. He is loving. He wants his people. He teaches his people. Do the rules of my house convey the love I have for my God and for my children? You can ask your friends. Hey, what do my rules mean to you? You can do the same to them. What am I revealing? What are my priorities? Do I care more about the carpet than I do about my children? Do I care more that the plates are perfectly placed in the dishwasher? Than having joyful laughter in the house? Do I want my house perfectly clean and have no guests ever? I need this museum. Or the silly ones, don't jump off the toilet. I asked them, what do you think that reveals about your parents? And believe it or not, they actually said, they care about me. They don't want me to get hurt. And there's also, I don't want, you know, the parents don't want the toilet to get broken, but <laughs> nonetheless, Every rule we have reveals our heart in little shapes and forms and pieces. What do your rules reveal about you? What is your priority? What or whom are you serving? Now, if you don't know what these rules reveal about you, ask a close friend, ask a child. Ask a young enough child and they will not lie. They don't care how it's going to make you feel. They will tell you your house is not fun to be at. I love coming to your house. Well, why is that? Why is this house fun? Why is this house hard to be? Great learning opportunity for all of us. And as you're exploring your house rules, be seeking God. Seek him during this time. Seek him for guidance. Seek him on how you can do better with these rules. Because if you're valuing material things more than his people or more than him, that's an idol. So how can my house rules better reflect the character of God and the love I have for him and the love I have for my family? Which means, if we're doing this well, you know your heart. Now, the question is, do we want to know our hearts? The Lord knows your heart. And believe it or not, he desires that you know your own heart. When he says, you shall have no other gods before me, that implies you know what gods you have in your house, what idols you have in your cupboard. While idols are in the secret room in the back of the house that only you go to at 1 a.m. It's when you're alone with your phone. It's when you're on a business trip. It's when the kids have missed their naps three days in a row. Your pantry is empty and the kids are hungry and they're angry. What does that reveal about you and how you respond? What? is in your heart. When you reflect upon your house rules, understand what those reveal to others. You have to ask those very hard heart questions. Get a piece of paper and write those rules out. And I say that for those who have children, we may have a list of house rules up on the fridge and we can point to them and say, This is our rule. We said no punching after dinner. We said you have to finish your food. We said these things. Now you're in violation of these things. And we can go in the discipline room and take care of business. If you're married and you don't have children, you have house rules. Because there are things you probably avoid to make sure you're keeping the peace with your spouse. Maybe that means, husbands, your laundry goes all the way into the hamper. We take our shoes off by the door. The wives get the joke. (laughs) We have these rules, even without the kids. If you're single, you have house rules. You like to have your house a certain way. You have your shoes in a certain spot. When people come over, you do a certain thing. And in certain ways, all those things are house rules. Write them out so you actually know what they are. And then you take them to the Lord in prayer. You take that list of rules, the 5, 10, 20, 30 rules, how many you may have. Take them to the Lord. Ask him, what do these rules reveal about my heart? Am I honoring you with these things? Am I prioritizing you? Or am I prioritizing the things you have blessed me with? The Lord has blessed us with time, with resources. He has blessed us with friendships, relationships, jobs. Are these being a priority over the one true God or over the fellowshipping and gathering of the church? Whether you like what you see or not on that list, take it to the Lord. Tell him what you see. And ask him to reveal your heart in better clarity, maybe with being hard. What you may get back may be hard to hear. As you read through the word and you're comparing what the Lord says to what you value and you, you see the difference, and you're like, oh Lord, I have sinned this way. Help me. Help me grow this area. Once again, talk with others and have those honest conversations. That is why the Lord has blessed you with friendships and relationships. Yes, friends are fun. We did a whole series about relationships, hanging out, having fun. But those relationships become invaluable when we are speaking of the heart. Ask them, "What well, house rules do you have? Well, that's an odd one. Well, this is the one I have. And you start talking about it and you start asking like, man, are these good things? Or are there better things? Your list may be great. You're like, man, I am prioritizing well. You can ask, okay, these are good. What's better? How can I strive still more and get better at honoring the Lord in all that I do? It's okay to laugh. At the silly house rules we all have, like that jumping off the toilet thing. It's okay to laugh at her. The rules we must have because we have young children who need much correction and much guidance. It's okay. Now, the rules I have is not the rules you have. That's okay. The Lord has given me my wife and my children. The Lord has given you your spouse and your children your friends, my friends. Unique relationships that require unique rules and structure to promote growth in that area. God has given us all different personalities and kids. You know, we have 60 kids in this church almost. And I bet you can point to every single one and say you are different. You are uniquely and wonderfully made in the image of the Lord What a blessing that we get to see so many children in such diversity. You shall have no other gods before me. When you reflect upon who the Lord is and what he has revealed about himself in the scripture, remember, yes, it's negative, but there is a positive. It shows that he cares about you. It shows that he knows your heart. It shows that he wants to be known by you exclusively. Do not, he does not want to be shared with anything. He desires your heart and your heart wholly, utterly, completely. Because he wants that relationship. He wants that relationship. Just like your spouse wants you, not you plus I don't want for my wife to think of me plus someone else that she needs. It's exclusively me to her, her to me. How much more with the Lord when he says, you shall have no other one before me. No other relationship. No other job. No other fill in the blank before me. Seek the Lord. Lord as you seek to honor him with obeying his moral code that he has laid upon our hearts. Because he loves you, to tell you enough, I desire you.